Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at The Bulwark. I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and The Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker of The Week. Our special return guest, one of our favorites, is Will Salatin of Slate. So thank you, one and all. Will, it's great to have you back. Thanks. I'm here and ready to beg. <laughs> all right. Very good. Um, so this week uh, we had um, a fairly interesting Saturday morning where it looked for a few minutes as if the Senate might actually call witnesses and there was a certain amount of flurry of excitement. Um, and then that didn't happen. And we know how the vote went. And in the interim now, there is a lot of discussion about the what some people are calling the new Cold War between the institutional Republicans led by Mitch McConnell and, uh, and the, the Trump brand. Um, so I'm going to start with you, Will. Um, you've had some really, really strong, wonderful pieces lately about what Trump has meant for the Republican Party. And uh, I want to get to that. But, but uh, first, um, what is your sense of the relative strength of the opposing forces here? Well, the Trump forces have the upper hand within the party. Um, that's evidenced partly by the uh, impeachment vote itself and partly by the refusal of Republican senators, those who are up for election in 2022, when they were asked by Politico about the feud between Trump and uh, majority, now minority leader Mitch McConnell, to, uh, to stand up for McConnell, um, who simply stood – all McConnell did was stand up during the impeachment process – and say that although he was acquitting Trump because Trump was no longer president, Trump was absolutely morally guilty of having incited um, the attack on the Capitol. Um, everything McConnell said was true. Um, that was, to my mind, the reasonable and politically defensible position for Republicans to take. And yet McConnell himself was rebuked by his own members, by Senator Lindsey Graham, by Senator Ron Johnson, and nobody is standing up for him, which tells me that the Republican Party has almost completely capitulated to Trump, even after Trump no longer nominally has the power of the presidency. So I don't see much hope forward for the anti-Trump wing of the party. Um, Damon, uh, several county Republican committees in Mitch McConnell's home state of Kentucky have rebuked him. And the chairman of one county party wrote that um, McConnell should resign his leadership position because of his complete and total disdain for the will of his constituents. Yeah, well, you've seen statements like this from around the country, really going all the way back to the election itself and Trump beginning to stir up his opposition to the results uh, of the election, that these local uh, there were some local uh, officials who stood up to him and certified their votes, but plenty of others who, who really took a public stand in uh, in taking his side against the results of the election, because you had a mix of results back then. You had a mix of some local uh, officials standing with the norms of counting and certifying votes, and then others who were who were standing up. In opposition to that, it was a little unclear where people would come down. But now, as as Will I think said very uh, very eloquently, we're at at the point now where it appears um, the 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 bulk of uh, of prevailing opinion in the party throughout the country seems to be with Trump and against the position that McConnell. Uh, uh, staked out in that statement on Saturday uh, late afternoon after the vote. And it's it's a very demoralizing thing to behold, I think, to realize that, as, as Will said, uh, McConnell, nothing he said was controversial. It was a kind of standard, sane interpretation of what Trump was doing uh, in those 
uh, in those weeks uh, between the election and the insurrection on the on the sixth of January, and yet uh, no one is rising in his defense or echoing the statement. And even McConnell himself on Wednesday appeared to back down. He was asked by because you know Trump also issued his own. Uh, blistering statement on Tuesday, a two-page long, single-spaced uh, broadside against the Senate Minority Leader, mocking him and the usual Trumpian lies about how, oh, we we lost the Senate because of McConnell in Georgia rather than the reality, which is, of course, that uh, it's much more likely to assume much more true to facts that uh, the party came up short in the Georgia elections uh, in January because Trump and his supporters were saying that if you vote, it won't be a legitimate vote, that you can't trust anyone in charge in the party uh, with a legitimate election. Yeah. Um, so, Damon, can I can I interrupt you for just one minute, though, to, to dwell on this letter first? Just a second. Sure. Um, for, first of all, um, it's pretty clear that Trump didn't write all of it because he the word doer appears in the first sentence. Yes, absolutely. He, <laughs> yeah, doesn't, yeah. he, he yeah. wouldn't even know how to pronounce that word. Right. So <laughs> so <laughs> that was pretty clear. But um, but you know the other the other part of this that we've gotten so used to it, but it's still just gobsmacking that um, Trump can lodge these these crazy accusations, say, and he's got these connections to China, and you know so on and so forth. Now, if that were true. Um, if he had, you know, sketchy relationships with China, why in the world would Trump have had his wife as one of his cabinet members? Why would he never have thought to raise this as a problem before? You know, but that sort of logic, it doesn't matter. People just say, well, yeah, but I mean, you know, he he's, he fights. <laughs> and he absolutely does. I mean, uh, that's what you see over and over again. If you turn on him, he will come after you and try to tear you down. And he did in this in this letter. And the next day, the press asked McConnell for a comment, and he just deferred, deflected. Oh, well, we're moving on from that. No need to keep talking about that, which I guess I, I sort of understand, because what what is he going to do, spend the next two years in this, like uh, – shouting right. match with the former mm -hmm. president that's a, that's not in his interest or the interests of the party but it, it it could be in the interests of the party if he had some traction on his side and there was some hope of actually exiling trump from the party through such a conflict but he knows there is no such hope and so it, it's it's much more sensible for him to just try to change the subject and again that shows us i think where we are Linda, there have been a lot of um, chin-pulling pieces in the last few days, not to disparage them. I mean, they've been good, but, you know, pointing out that the Republican, the base of the Republican Party is where it is, and uh, therefore these Republicans who are voting to stick with Trump are doing the logical thing for them, and that that's just the way it is. And I have this... Something that bothers me about all of this analysis is, well, that is what we have because they've never chosen the leadership. The elites have never chosen to try to, um, you know, uh, uh, have a united front against Trump. I mean, frankly, if all of the Republican senators had held hands, you know, and said, we're all going to vote this way, you know, what? what would the Trump team have been able to do to them? You know, are they going to primary them all or that, you know, I mean, it would have, it would have sent a really strong signal and it would have been very tough for Trump to, um, to strike back at all of them. That's exactly right. And it's something we've talked about a lot on this program. You needed a critical mass. We never attained that. Um, you know, the only person who has spoken up, I think, uh, in the wake of the uh, letter, uh, to McConnell, John Thune has basically, you know, said he sticks by uh, his guns on what he has said. Uh, but you have figures like Ron Johnson, who apparently thinks that because every single person who stormed the Capitol uh, wasn't carrying an AK-47 with multiple rounds of ammunition, that it was not an armed insurrection. Right. Um, I mean, that is really where we are now. And you're absolutely right. What is lacking in the GOP right now is leadership. And in that vacuum of leadership, 
The only person who asserts himself is Donald Trump. There's no one there to counter him. There is no force that's pushing back against Trump and Trumpism. It's like an open door being pushed against by Trump. And so he has, you know, a third or so of the uh, population, uh, the voting population, who is with him and who will be with him no matter what. Um, but he does not have uh, the suburban voters that the Republican Party needs. He does not have uh, the women who have deserted this party. He doesn't have the business leaders who like Republicans on policy bases but don't want this craziness or this racism or xenophobia that the party has been peddling for the last several years. And, and yet um, they can't seem to come together and to say no. I mean, it really, this is the time to do it. Trump is um, muzzled. He is not totally silenced. Obviously he can release a, um, a statement. He can go on Fox News or OAN or uh, any of the other right-wing media that he chooses. But he doesn't have Twitter. He doesn't have that immediate uh, access to millions of followers who will follow him down whatever rabbit hole he takes them. And so this would be the time for those who are responsible in the party to stand together and to say, enough, this man has damaged our party, perhaps irreparably. It's not clear to me that uh, the Republicans can survive. Now, you know, uh, I think their best hope for surviving uh, is what the Democrats may do. And if they, uh, if the Democrats, you know, go too far in their culture war, if they uh, do things that alienate large swaths of, of uh, middle America in the, in the Midwest and in rural areas, um, Republicans may still win. But um, it, you know, this is the time when there could be an alternative uh, to Trump and Republican leaders like McConnell um, have a little bit of, of spine, but then they go, you know, to jelly uh, within a week. Um, Phil, I invite you to respond to anything that you've heard already, but I would also just like to tee up one thing, and that is, um, I don't know about you, but for me, that McConnell speech following his vote to acquit um, just created such cognitive dissonance. <laughs> Um, it was such a powerful speech. It was so much like what could have been written by the House managers. Um, and then to also vote to acquit on this, this, this sort of invented, you know, jurisdictional uh, fig leaf ground. I, I just found it really strange. And I think he was really being too cute and trying to have it both ways. What did, what did you think? Or, or respond, as I say, to anything you've already heard. Well, you know, first, first of all, you know, I have found it best, or at least most hopeful, you know, in practicing politics or in writing about it, to assume that people are acting in good faith until there's solid evidence that they aren't. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to, I'm prepared to take Mitch McConnell at his word. Uh, he genuinely believed that uh, it would be outside the scope of the Senate's constitutional power to vote to convict someone uh, who had already left federal office. And to be fair to him, there are a number of respected conservative legal scholars who take that position. Uh, I don't know a lot of non-conservative scholars who do, but that's not the point. Uh, I don't regard it as a fig leaf, and therefore I didn't experience the same kind of cognitive dissonance. Uh, dissonance that you did, but I may be dead wrong about that. Uh, it doesn't come easily to me after the first Obama term to ascribe good faith to Mitch McConnell, let alone, you know, after his, after the second Obama term uh, with the, uh, with the Merrick Garland affair, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, but let me just make a couple of remarks about uh, what we've already discussed. Uh, the simple fact of the matter is that Donald Trump in 2015 and 2016 understood what the base of the Republican Party wanted better than any of the professionals running against him who had spent years and in many cases decades 
as as senior representatives of the Republican Party. And I think I think Republicans who are anti-Trumpers should acknowledge that fact. They didn't lose by accident. Uh, Donald Trump, I believe, understood the Tea Party and what that represented in a way that small government conservatives didn't. There's been an assumption that the Tea Party was a conservative ideological revolt in favor of small government uh, against Obamacare, against big appropriations for TARP, et cetera, et cetera. That's just not true, right? And there's survey research to prove it. Uh, they were in favor of, of government payments that went to people they felt didn't deserve them. They weren't, they weren't against big government. They certainly weren't against the biggest programs that the government, government oversees. Uh, they were populists, not conservatives. Uh, they hated liberals a lot more than they loved conservatives. And Trump figured that out. Uh, and nothing changed during Trump's term. And in my most recent Wall Street Journal column this week, I rounded up all of the survey evidence on the base's attitude. Uh, and I couldn't find any evidence that when forced to choose between Trump and establishment Republican officials, that the base was in any mood to choose the establishment. You just can't find any evidence for it. Donald Trump is the Republican Party. And the Republican Party has been thoroughly Trumpified and was largely Trumpified before Trump ever came along. That's the truth of the matter. Uh, and I'm sorry that it's depressing to lifelong Republicans, but I don't think the evidence can sustain any other conclusion. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't disagree with any of that. I would just respond um, by saying we don't, you know, you say he, he identified where the base was better than anybody else. I'm not sure that's right. I mean, uh, Ted Cruz uh, had a message. It was very similar to Trump's. You know, we've got to get this immigration under control. That's the big thing. And, you know, we have to fight the, li the libs. And, and he was also, he came into the Senate fighting the Senate leadership, the establishment Republicans. He, he had a very populist approach and they didn't choose him. Why? Because he wasn't on the apprentice for 12 years and they didn't feel like they knew him the way they felt like they knew Trump. And they, they thought, Oh, Trump's a successful businessman. Talked to all these you look at all the focus groups, people said that over and over again. They actually believed that he was a businessman who would get things done. So I'm not so sure that it's clear that um, that it was his that it was completely his message. But anyway, that's water over the dam at this point because whatever it was in 2016, it is certainly his party now and it has his leadership has affected the party. And I'll just close out this segment by quoting from Will Salatin, um, because you had a wonderful piece a few weeks ago where you said, what Trump has brought to the United States is ruthless, relentless, denialist propaganda at a scale we used to see only in dictatorships. And uh, that is true. And we're going to have an opportunity to talk a little bit more about that when we get to our third topic. But right now I'd like to turn, unless anybody has anything burning that they want to say on this subject, let us turn to Texas. Um, and Will, I'm going to start with you because I know you have um, relatives in Texas, as do I. Um, my oldest son was uh, trapped for several days without um, heat, without power, and without water um, in his apartment in San Antonio. So that, uh, okay. So, so in, in, in America now, we do not have problems and then have debates about how to solve them. We have blame festivals. <laughs> so, so you had leading conservative outlets claiming that this was all the fault of windmills. Go, Will. Okay. Well, you know, so for, for folks out there who are trying, I know that, you know, ordinary people are not as smart as us political pundits. So let me explain to the ordinary people what happened. It got really cold in Texas. <laughs> and when things get cold, they freeze. Okay. So, so what happened is freezing tends not to care what your source of power is. 
the infrastructure of every energy source in Texas froze. Okay, so I'm just I'm being facetious. Obviously, ordinary people deal with this all the time, right? Right. Uh, you the the windmills the the turbines did freeze. They froze. So did so did the natural gas pipelines. They yep. froze. So did even uh, the uh, one of the reactors, the nuclear reactors in Texas, stopped working. It for the the, in, the all all of these pipes froze. So the idea that we're now going to like on the basis of the freezing go around and picking you know winners and losers. Uh, I mean, yes, it was the approved Fox News conservative right wing line uh, that the wind turbines freezing was the problem. You can't trust the wind turbines. So if we're going to apply the general rule that things that freeze can't be relied upon when it freezes, then basically there are no energy sources that Texas was relying on significantly um, that are safe from that. Um, and I wish, I really wish that we could get away from this politics of choosing up sides. You know, this is what Tony Fauci complained about in the case of COVID. How did it come to be that it turned into an ideological war whether to wear a mask against a respiratory virus? Yeah. It's kind of a no-brainer. The same is true of freezing. So I'm not here to do a brief for uh, wind power, although I think it's great, um, or against nuclear power, which I also, also think has a role. I'm just here to tell you that freezing is the issue, and anybody who tells you that on the basis of what just happened, you should be against certain kinds of renewable energy and in favor of fossil fuels just is not facing the facts. So Linda, one of the people who did this, actually the Wall Street Journal editorial board did it, and uh, then they had to publish another piece the following day that sort of tried to justify what they had said, except they were they were a little bit slippery about what they had actually said the previous day. But anyway, here was Tucker Carlson. Um, quote, the Green New Deal came to Texas. The power grid in the state became totally reliant on windmills. Then it got cold and the windmills broke because that's what happens in the Green New Deal, unquote. Now, Linda, I have to tell you, I mean, I am a, you know, sort of all of the above type when it comes to energy sources. I think, you know, we definitely have a problem with climate, but, you know, we should definitely, but, but you can't rely entirely on, on uh, renewables and you need other sources. And in general, you know, natural gas has been really pro-environment because it replaces coal, blah, 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 blah. But when I hear the arguments that are being made in such bad faith, it just makes me want to scream and just say, you know, fine, I'll be for the Green New Deal. Uh, right. And, well, ex exactly. I mean, that is essentially the flip side of what uh, Bill was talking about in terms of, you know, whether you're so against the crazies on the right that you join the crazies on the left <laughs> just because you hate the crazies on the right so much. And of yeah. course, that's not a good idea. No. And, you know, um, look, I, I have uh, solar on my house here and in Colorado. I love windmills. Um, I, I actually think they're very attractive. I used, uh, used to enjoy driving by them in Colorado. Uh, but, you know, it isn't, it isn't that windmills were the problem. It's that in the Northeast where they have windmills, they winterize them so that they don't freeze when the temperatures drop. But this right. is a, you know, a once in, in several decades event in Texas where the temperatures drop this low uh, and this fast and for this prolonged period of time. And I, I do think that we've gotten to the point, you're right, we've politicized everything. We want to blame somebody instead of trying to figure it out. And the fact is some of these things, you know, they're mother nature, they're acts of God. They're not things that we can always anticipate or even that we can expect utility comp companies uh, to plan for as part of their regular business. Now, should they have done a better job? Yes. Is it a little peculiar? Texas is not part of the grid that governs the eastern part of the United States or the western part. They have their own internal a grid that provides energy only throughout the state of Texas. Uh, is that a problem here? Uh, probably because, you know, they might have been able to pull, uh, although the frankly, the, the storm is so widespread, it's not clear that they could have uh, pulled energy sources from elsewhere uh, during this. But, you know, it's just sort of sickening that uh, every uh, tragedy. And it, you know, it started with Katrina. I don't, I, I may have yeah. occurred before, but you know, it was all uh, 
you know, George W. Bush's fault. Um, and that he hated black people. And he hated black people, right. And, yeah. you know, it was, um, we've gotten to the point where we don't just disagree about policies. We don't just disagree about solutions. We've decided we have to make the people who disagree with us on those matters evil uh, with the intent to harm uh, the other half of America. It's like we are in this constant political civil war and you have to pick sides. And if you're on one side, you have to hate people on the other side. And I'm frankly tired of it. Yeah, I wonder how many people are tired of it. Um, by the way, in the discussion earlier about the Republican Party, we didn't get to this, but you know, there are thousands of people who are leaving the party um, because of what happened on January 6th. So even though we, we stressed you know, the, the loyalty to Trump, there's another story there too. The party is getting smaller here. Let me just, this, there was a, a morning consult poll that showed that, um, let me find it. Um, yeah, that the number of Republic, uh, there's been a decline from 42% back in November who called themselves Republicans down to 37%. Economist YouGov poll. Now it's just one poll, who knows, but uh, it's a possibly significant number. Um, so, uh, so Damon, we've all gotten a quick education about uh, about the power grid and how Texas has got its own. But you know, as Linda says, I mean, this is a once in a several decade event. Most of the time, Texas has reliable and cheap, it should be said, cheap energy compared to other parts of the country. Um, and, you know, you do have, there are always trade-offs in life. I mean, you, it costs money to winterize your, um, your, your wind turbines and it, and it costs money to, uh, you know, to, to make the other changes. Um, you know, so, so, People in their ordinary lives, you know, when they're doing their own finances, can understand the concept of trade-offs. But somehow, when it gets to public policy, that gets much harder to uh, to come across. What do you think? Well, that's true, and I'm very much in favor of cost-benefit analyses and and thinking in terms of trade-offs and costs and insurance and how much do you spend to prevent against an event that might not happen for 50 years. But the problem is that we seem, for various complicated reasons, to be in a period where we've had a number of these big kind of events. With climate change, there are going to be more of them related to weather. And you have then, you know, of course, we've had the pandemic. It's the worst pandemic in 100 years. Um, there was a plan uh, that was started to be put together by George W. Bush and was continued and updated by Obama. Uh, then Trump decided to basically throw it out, ignore it, not use it for, uh, for COVID-19. And you, you were in this strange situation where these big, bad events happen that are rare and that we're not prepared for. We we either aren't prepared for them or when they happen, we're sort of not ready to implement the plan or hope we can avoid it because it's too expensive. And the end result is that we end up with human suffering and, and things turning out worse than they would have if we had prepared better or responded better, which just increases a kind of cynicism and anger at the, the institutions of government for failing to step up and protect us or fix the problem. And this can be a self-reinforcing kind of downward spiral into a kind of hostility toward government and those in charge. And that that's the, the you know, again, I speak as, as a center-left guy, uh, that that is kind of the, the really dark side of the uh, multi-generation long uh, polemic against government by the right, I think, that one way in which the anti-government message can win is by, um, is by the government failing repeatedly, which then is used, aha, evidence, see, government is awful, we should get rid of it. You see, you definitely see that dynamic in what's happened to the post office with with uh, you know Trump get, getting DeJoy appointed as Postmaster General, he very clearly from his career had a kind of contempt for the post office, came in, instituted all of these changes 
that drastically slowed down mail delivery. And it was especially bad around the Christmas season, but it's still happening now. I regularly have people say, who ship me things via the, the U, U.S. Postal Service, and it takes three weeks to get to me when it would have taken three days a couple of years ago. What's the pro, What's the result of that? Well, my thought is I'm, I'm going to tell anyone I buy anything from or ask someone to ship me to not use the Postal Service because it's unreliable use. FedEx or UPS or some other service, and what's the result of that change? Well, if a lot of people do what I'm doing, then the Postal Service is doing much worse than it was before, and then Republicans can go and say, look, we should defund this even further and get rid of it because it's ineffective. But one reason it's ineffective is because Republican governance has made it that way. And so I'm, I'm distressed by a kind of intentional um, uh, embrace of failure as a kind of ratchet to move an anti-government message further and further down the line. Um, yeah, I, I hear you. I, I agree in part. Um, at the same time, um, the, the anti-government posture, where, when it's just reflexive, is obviously simple-minded. But so is the pro-government posture, you know, that, that government can come in and fix things and that, and that government, unlike business, is, is dispassionate and has no, none of its own uh, interests and so on. And I don't think that's actually the way things work either. I mean, for example, maybe next week we'll talk about the schools, but, you know, we have not, we've not had the reopening of schools in a lot of communities in the United States when the studies show that they are not severe vectors for disease um, and when not having schools open is a huge hardship. Why is this? Well, because government is sometimes responsive to very powerful private interests, in this case, the teachers unions. And, and so, you know, the idea that, that a benevolent state can always make things better is also not true. So anyway, just that's my, my little sermonette for the moment. Um, and we can come back to that um, when we talk about school reopening, which I hope we will do next week. Um, but uh, unless anybody has anything further to add about Texas, by the way, Will, I hope your family is now okay. Uh, yeah, power's back on. Of course, it be, could be off in a couple of hours, but for right. now. Right, right. So, uh, yeah. So well, my son is better. Yeah, Bill. Bill, uh, you never called on me about Texas. Oh, sorry, sorry, Bill. Go, go. That's okay. So, but I I know it's time to move on. So I'll I'll be brief. Uh, you know, about a year and a half ago, I noticed something which is quite simple-minded, but also also I think has enormous significance. And I've noticed a couple of economists writing about it more recently, namely that there is a trade-off between efficiency and low prices on the one hand. And what people are coming to call resilience on the other. And you can define resilience as the, as the ability to perform even in the face of low probability, high impact events. I lived in Texas for 10 years. And uh, I learned a lot of things about Texas during that period. And one of them is that the you know, the popular belief about rugged independence as the center of Texas consciousness is not wrong. Uh, you know, however much it may be betrayed and traduced in, packet, in, in, in practice, that's what they really believe the good life is and what the good person is. That's part of it. Another thing I noticed about Texas is that people understandably spend a lot more time spending about, uh, worrying about excessive heat than about paralyzing snowfalls because they simply didn't experience paralyzing snowfalls. And it's a very tough sell for government to say, or for government to order private industry uh, to prepare against what appear to be extremely low probability events. That's, when I, that's why when I got to Washington, D.C., and there was the first snowstorm, I was flabbergasted that the city 
treated it as an event that they had no responsibility to do anything about. Why? Uh, because uh, it made no sense to a series of city governments up pretty close to the present day to have anything like a snowplow inventory because what's the point of having snowplows in a city that is paralyzed by snow relatively infrequently? Better to muddle through than to pay the price of buying and maintaining a big fleet. Uh, and not spending the money on something else, right? Well, Texas, Texas, one of the big attractors of the much-talked-about immigration serve to Texas is low prices, including low energy prices. You get low energy prices when regulators don't force utilities to prepare for low-probability, low high-impact events. So right. here we are. Right, right, right. Linda, did you weigh in on this topic? I'm sorry if I now I'm worried that I'm forgetting. No, I did. Okay. All right. Very good. Um, all right. Let us uh, turn now to uh, considering the uh, contribution to our national life by Rush Limbaugh, died this week of uh, lung cancer. Um, this is tough. Um, you know, you are not supposed to speak ill of the dead, um, and. Uh, but honestly, I really do. I think that an honest evaluation of his impact on America requires us to not only uh, to, to just to, to be honest. So, um, so Damon, I saw this morning that you had a new piece up um, about his his influence. And uh, why don't you start us off? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I wrote a piece about uh, that sort of is inflected through my own experience as a former conservative uh, when I, I used to work at First Things magazine in the early 2000s and just reflecting on the way we on staff at that magazine and at similar magazines thought about Rush Limbaugh back then. And we didn't think about him much. Uh, we knew he was out there. Occasionally, we'd turn on the radio and hear him and kind of snicker at the at the jokes and the, the little bits that he would do, mocking things. But we didn't really uh, attend to it because we saw our role uh, as intellectuals as different than that. We were conservatives. We were in favor of of crafting arguments and, and trying to use our uh, – consequential ideas, to use the Richard Weaver line about ideas having consequences, using ideas to change the country and make it better and elevate it. There was a, definitely a feeling of uh, kind of nobility and honor to what we were trying to do. And we all sort of, I think, tacitly recognized that, you know, Rush Limbaugh's kind of slumming it. He's, he's kind of playing to the rabble, if you will. Um, uh, and and that, that has its place. It's important. We need to, you know, keep the voters animated and eager to show up on Election Day, and he helps with that. And we all want the same thing ultimately, so let him do what he does. We'll do what we do. The strange thing, though, is that as conservatives, uh, one thing that we believed in or a couple of things we believed in was that uh, you have to cultivate morality. You have to cultivate virtue. You do this by habituation. You do it by giving people exemplifications to model yourself after. And none of us seem to really contemplate, you know, I wonder if there'll be a bad consequence of the fact that millions of people every day are being taught that politics is insulting your opponents uh, you know, in the 90s, making fun of the appearance of the president's teenage daughter week mm -hmm. after week, month after month, um, uh, calling feminists Nazis for years to yuck, yuck laughs, uh, and on and on and on. And, and yet the fact, I think, is that if you want to understand, as I think Bill was talking about very nicely a little while ago and talking about Trump, if you want to understand where Trump came from and how the Republican Party has ended up where it is, I think you need to look at that influence that a whole generation of young conservatives grew up listening to Rush Limbaugh and they became uh, – they assimilated themselves to an outlook on politics that is all about exactly what Trump does. It's just insult-mongering 
uh, you know, demonizing your opponents, never really engaging in a good faith argument with something the other side is saying, uh, let alone the best example of what the other side is saying. It's always looking for the worst example of your opponent and then amplifying that and using it to to uh, tar the entire other side and make fun of them, and, and on and on. And so it, it's, I, I think, it, there have been a lot of pieces written in the last day or so about, you know, the, the kind of Limbaugh-Trump connection, uh, but I do think one uh, sadly ironic uh, dimension of it is the blindness of conservatives to the kind of, the expected consequence of having somebody out there uh, modeling that form of politics uh, so loudly for so many years and not realizing it would have an effect. Linda, I, I don't know if you feel this way. I, looking back, um, I actually sensed a change in Limbaugh over the years when he first became popular. Um, he was... He was over the top sometimes, no question about it, but he was funny and, um, and irreverent and seemed to be really interested in, in conservative ideas. And um, I don't know. And then as time went on, he began to get more and more weird, um, seeming to want to appeal to the Alex Jones types in the audience, um, engaging in more conspiracy thinking what well, did you did you see that or was am i imagining things no i don't think you're imagining things uh, let, let me state at the outset that i was never a rush limbaugh fan it was not somebody whose program i listened to it's just not not my style of debate um i don't like big egos i don't like people who are so uh enamored of themselves that they become the focus and and that was always who rush limbaugh was but i will yep. tell you that while I wasn't a fan of, of Rush Limbaugh's, he was for a time a fan of mine. He would occasionally oh, yeah. read my columns. He probably read from your columns as well mm -hmm. uh, on his program. And, um, you know, that was nice to expose me. I, I, would, I would hear about it from people who would tuned in. And then I would uh, look and see my book sales going up immediately afterwards um in my case helpful. it was like the ups delivery guy be like oh you're yeah, that right. mona Chester. yes absolutely yeah. i had yeah. that happen in 7-eleven at one time <laughs> uh so yeah but i will tell you where one thing he really turned around on was on immigration i mean he was in the early days a ronald reagan type republican who believed that immigrants worked hard you know they contributed um, and uh, he was not nativist in that. And, and my guess is he probably had a lot of uh, fans out there in the Hispanic community, just as Donald Trump does. Uh, but um, he went from being my fan to being somebody who targeted me. Uh, he went on a tirade. I think it was in 2007 or so. Uh, I wrote a column in which I talked, in which I talked about immigration, and I talked about the xenophobia on the right. Um, I had a long uh, exchange, uh, a symposium, a National Review, uh, because people like Ramesh Panuru didn't think much of my column either, um, and he really went after me. And it was all on immigration, and he sort of keyed into that as an issue. And, you know, earlier, uh, Bill was talking about uh, the base of the party and how it was, you know, more populist, uh, didn't really uphold conservative principles. And I think Bill is right on this. Um, and it certainly started with the uh, Tea Party movement. Uh, one of the reasons I didn't like the Tea Party movement um, was not just that I think populism is often dangerous, but also because they um, went after um, immigration and immigrants in particular. And he became uh, really a force in shutting down any chance of immigration reform. And I remember uh, during the uh, George W. Bush administration being called in for a meeting with the president and, and others backing the bill and having a conversation with him about the malign influence of talk radio uh, and Fox News and, and other outlets. But Fox even then was not quite as bad as it later became. And mm -hmm. Limbaugh was very much the leader of this. So he 
you know, he did help. Um, I think he liked Trump. He knew his audience. Uh, he played to his audience. And then he took his audience to darker and darker places. Uh, I don't wish anyone ill. I'm sorry that he suffered from a very painful disease, but I am not sorry to see him off the airwaves. Um, well, I, one of the one of the first things that made me realize that that there was some distance between me and people that I thought were sort of simpatico politically and intellectually was a few years back. I don't remember when I stopped listening to Rush Limbaugh. And by the way, he attacked me too on his on his show, Linda, later on in um, in his uh, you know in more recent years. But um, but so I stopped listening to him a long time ago. But I remember having a conversation with a Washington prominent Washington D.C. conservative journalist. Uh, when Rush had had some sort of a health scare, I don't remember what it was, but um, but he said, uh, this person said to me, boy, can you imagine what it would be like without Rush? And I, I was shocked. I thought, you've got to be kidding. You know, I mean, Rush Limbaugh, he's a, he's a carnival barker. He's a clown. He's, you know, whatever. And, uh, but no, he was, this guy was a real fan. And I thought, oh, okay, well, that, that, that's interesting. I guess, um. That anyway, um, so so uh, so will um, one of the things that I do think he came to personify, and that's why the comparisons with Trump are perfectly fair, is that he, you know, because he kept saying, "I'm just an entertainer, I'm just an entertainer," you know, uh, but but he misled his audience all the time. He would lie, he would shade things, and he would always do it with this um, conspiratorial wink toward the audience, like he was letting them in on secret knowledge. And there's something about people, I don't know, maybe it's also true on the left, but I know it's, well, it is also true for some people on the left, but, uh, but certainly there's this tremendous appetite on the right, perhaps because the mainstream media does tend to lean left, you know, the NPRs. And, uh, and and the mainstream newspapers and and uh, and television stations and so on are more on the left and the sort of liberal side of the spectrum, and so you know when when somebody on the right says that they're going to invite you into what's really going on, the things that the major media won't tell you, it's like catnip, and he really perfected that, and and he laid the groundwork for Trump to say, don't believe anything that you get from the mainstream media. It's all lies. It's all fake. Yeah, and I think it's really unfortunate for uh, conservatism and for the United States and for the world that the person who filled that role was Rush Limbaugh. Um, I, I'm sorry that I don't have anything nice to say about him, but we are more than 24 hours past his death at this point. And, and the truth is that societies decay, bad things happen, they rot, and some people are just fundamental parts of the rot. And that's what Rush Limbaugh was. Um, he was, you know, I think it's true that at, when he first started, it was a, a breath of fresh air for a lot of people who are conservative leaning and felt that, you know, the, the media were liberal and biased. And here was somebody who at least spoke to them who they could relate to. But he was fundamentally juvenile and mean. And mm -hmm. um, I, I, I think he did three things. I think uh, he he, incur he promoted a focus on ideology over facts. That is, when, when, data, when there was information that contradicted his party line, he told people to stand by the party line. And that's where the lies came in. But he, he promoted this whole way of thinking where we don't absorb information that's contrary to what we want to, to believe. Um, and, of course, that's very prominent today. He also promoted the feeling of, of you know, focusing on social camaraderie of having your, your buddies on the right who all agree about things over thinking, right? He just, you, you, you weren't really supposed to think so much because, I mean, the phrase for people who followed Lim Limbaugh was literally ditto heads, right? We, we all, mm -hmm. they all agreed. I'm not saying they all agreed about everything, but that was what he promoted. That was what the culture was. And the third thing um, is that he, although I say he's ideological, was ideological, he really elevated the the ascent of resentments over ideas, at least on the right, um, so that uh, instead of 
believing in anything that used to be in the republic you know we don't even have a republican party platform anymore and uh, mm-hmm. what we have is owning the libs right and and limbaugh was always about digging and hurting and insulting and his followers loved that and the problem with that is there's you're not even if there's not even a, a percentage chance that you might be promoting the right ideas because you're not promoting any ideas at all um, you're just going with what feels good and what you know what feels good to those folks was hurting other people so you know we're left with this paradox if this man died and we'd like to say something up nice and we don't want to say speak ill of the dead but that is what rush limbaugh did for a living was to speak ill of the dead of michael j fox of of um uh, people who died of AIDS, of uh, countless people who suffered or died, um, and and so I- I'm sorry, but that was that is the legacy of Rush Limbaugh. Yeah, Bill, he um, he played, of course, a key role. Some people thought, obviously wrongly, that uh, in 2016 perhaps he would be the voice, or maybe even late 2015. He would be the voice on the right who could stand athwart Donald Trump's rise and say, "No, this man is not a true conservative. He's he's a fraud, and don't don't follow him, don't believe him." But of course, he didn't do that. And later, you know, after all those years of saying that he was conducting a a uh, a seminar on conservatism over the airways, I can't remember what he called it. Something like, you know, your conservative center. I don't remember. But but um, as you see, I didn't listen to it for a long time. But, um, but in fact, um, sort of is similar to what you were saying about the Tea Party, um, there, he, he wasn't really conservative at all because he was perfectly happy to get behind uh, Trump and said uh, when he was explaining this that, uh, that it wasn't about conservatism. It was about, I don't know what, but what, he said it wasn't about conservatism. Uh well, I now find myself in an interesting position, Mona, because the item I had uh, reserved for my looking across the other side mm, yeah. <laughs> at the close is now so germane that I'm going to have to I'm going to have to do it now. Okay. Uh, and and you know because you've just you've just teed it up perfectly. Uh, I. I think Limbaugh taught us that ideas may have power, but emotions have more power than ideas. And by the way, I think that's true. It's a pretty deep truth about politics, unfortunately. Uh, And he also taught us, and this is building on what Will said, that of the emotions in politics, the negative ones are much more effective than the positive was. And uh, and the appeal to resentment may be the most effective appeal of all. Uh, and so here is what Limbaugh said in January of 2016. Uh, there, he said, there are a lot of people in this country who are conservative. But that's not the glue that unites them. If it were, uh, if conservatism were the glue, the belief and understanding of deep, commonly understood conservative principles, if that's what defined people as conservative and was the glue that made the conservative movement a big movement, then Trump would have no chance. This is January of 2016, mind you. Yep. He literally would have no choice because whatever he is, he's not and never has been a doctrinaire conservative. If conservatism were this widely understood, deeply held belief system, then outsiders like Trump would not stand a prayer of getting support from people, yet he is. And then, you know, how does he how does Rush explain this? The thing that's in front of everybody's face and it's apparently so hard to believe is this united virulent opposition to the left. And I, for the life of me, don't know what is so hard to understand about that. Uh, I think I think that the evidence was on Limbaugh's side five years ago, and it's even more on his side now. 
It is the enactment of antipathy that is the real motivating force here. And and you know, and resentment is not something you create. It's something, you know, whose existence you divine, usually intuitively. And your job then as an entertainer or as a political leader is to mobilize that resentment. And doing that, making it legitimate to say the previously unsayable, is to politics as cracking the atom is to energy. Boom. Yeah. Uh, and uh, in the case of Limbaugh, uh, exploiting that resentment made him fabulously wealthy. He made an estimated $85 million a year um, and uh, also g gave him tremendous power. Um, and in the case of Donald Trump, exploiting that resentment obviously um, allowed him to nearly destroy the country. So <laughs> um, it is it is very, very powerful. All right. Um, well, uh, let us now uh, turn to our final segment, things that we would like to highlight. And uh, Linda had to leave early, so she's uh, she'll be back next week. Damon, let's start with you. Okay. I hope it's okay if I actually go off uh, the proverbial reservation and leave politics behind for a moment. Although I yeah. guess in the broadest sense of politics, there is a political dimension to this, given how much time we've spent on recent shows talking about uh, things like culture in the New York Times and kind of canceling and, uh, and, and you know, what you're allowed to say in public. Um, I just want to draw attention to that there is a, a, a massive authoritative uh, biography of Philip Roth uh, coming out uh, in mm. a couple of months by Blake Bailey. Uh, he's the author of uh, a biography of uh, John Cheever that was very well received. And, and he, he worked very closely with Roth for the better part of a decade before Roth's death. Uh, on this book, and it's very anticipated. I've been really looking forward to it. And I just want to point out, it still might be worth reading. It still might be very good. But har the new issue of Harper's Magazine um, has a review of it uh, titled The Possessed by Joshua Cohen. That is the most uh, just mind-blowingly vicious takedown I've read in a long time. And, and, I, do, and I do think that... There has been a kind of diminishment of good, very tough criticism over the last decade as people have become more skittish about being nasty because I guess you're only allowed to be nasty in a meta way. So in other words, you someone comes out and says something and then they get attacked by everybody online saying, you're not allowed to say that. In, in saying the criticism of the critic you're allowed to be nasty, but the criticism itself is not supposed to be as much. But this piece, it takes, it takes uh, Joshua Cohen, the critic, writes it as if he's himself Philip Roth reviewing the book. And, oh. uh, and this is a trope that doesn't always work, but he pulls it off very well. And it is just, it is just a vicious takedown of this, this biography. And, uh, if you care about ideas and are interested in Roth and literature, it's it's a really great, uh, great work of criticism. So I don't know if you can get it yet on Open Access uh, Harper's website, but hopefully they'll let it uh, let it out soon for non-subscribers. And uh, look for it. it's titled again "The Possessed" by Joshua Cohen, a review of uh, the Philip Roth biography coming from Blake Paley. Well. Um, there may be some people in this world who are above enjoying a great takedown, but I'm not one of them. <laughs> Glad to hear it. <laughs> um, Bill, did you want to jump in next? No. I already, you know, it's not. I already used my material. Okay. Uh, okay. But I will, yeah, but I, will just, I will just comment very briefly uh, that – you know, I have I have thought very hard as an author and also you know, a, a longtime book reviewer of the ethics of book reviewing uh, and especially what it means to be on the other end of that kind of review. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that kind of review, you know, 
bespeaks a taste. I haven't read the review, but I'll rely on Damon's characterization of it. Reflects a taste for cruelty, right? And you know, an urge and an urge to destroy. Uh, that you know, I think I think merits uh, condemnation and not praise. This is a moral judgment. I do not like people who enjoy being mean to other people. And I'm not sure anybody should. Okay. Well, I so I, of course, agree with that. But we'd have to see the review first before we, do. we, we really knew. But, uh, but I, you know, there are – so I'll tell you, just recently, one of my sons who's getting a Ph.D. in history directed me to a um, historian's website where they were discussing – the various things regarding the 1619. Anyway, um, there was the there was a, a a takedown by one historian of another that was not like purposely to be mean, but it was just so comprehensive and showed so thoroughly why the first guy was wrong that it was like a pleasure to read. I mean, it was just wow that that is the way you do intellectual combat, and there's a that's place fine. for that. And that's yeah. fine. Yeah. Right, but it depends. It depends on what your motive is. Yeah. Oh, and it also depends on the, the words you choose and so forth. I mean, well, some I, things I, that are just meant to be personally lacerating are obviously out of bounds. And, and I would urge Bill to actually read the review before he uses it as, as an exemplification of a vice. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good okay, idea. Okay, but Damon, you know, as, you know, as you presented it, you know, my characterization was almost, uh, of your presentation was almost irresistible. <laughs> okay. Okay, Will Salatin, what have you got for us? Okay, so when the uh, Pfizer and Moderna uh, COVID vaccines came out, we were told that uh, they were ninety-four to ninety-five percent effective uh, after you get your first the first shot and then the booster shot. But if you only did the first shot, they were only about fifty percent effective. It now turns out that uh, this week there was a – this was actually published as just correspondence in the New England Journal of Medicine on Wednesday that uh, somebody – a couple of scientists reanalyzed the data because they pointed out that that 50 percent figure of immunity from the first dose was based on including people who had just gotten the first shot. In other words, people within the first two weeks after getting the first shot who dramatically – diluted the efficacy of the vaccine because they didn't have the immunity yet. So what these folks did was they reanalyzed the data based on starting after two weeks after the first dose. Yeah. And they found that the it was 92% effective. 92%. That is, that is two points shy of the full effectiveness after the second dose, which immediately raises the question, why in God's name are we withholding any vaccine doses from anyone who does not yet have it. That is to say, we are scheduling second doses for people when other people haven't had the first dose. If these numbers are correct, and this is preliminary, but it's highly likely that they will turn out to be largely correct, um, we absolutely should be giving everybody these vaccines, one dose to everybody, before we do anything with a second dose. Thank you so much for bringing that up. There was a piece that ran actually in the Washington Post, I think it was on Sunday, by an economist at um, George Mason named Alex Tabarak, I think, at the Mercatus Center, who was making this point. And, uh, and so, yeah, there, there's a, there are things I'm just hoping that the relevant decision makers will see this and uh, and change course because it totally I mean it seems to me to make sense and I would want the experts to weigh in but yeah that's really really important thank you for that all right um, I wanted to uh, draw attention to a piece that appeared in the American Purpose uh, magazine which I think Bill is on the editorial board of. Um, it's called 1619 versus 1776, and it was by Daniel, I don't know if it's Chiro, C-H-I-R-O-T, um, and, um, and it's, a, it's an interesting reflection on our fights about our history, and he, he has some really, really, I think, interesting observations about the fact that 
all countries, when they tell their stories, tend to lie a little bit about their past and to, you know, smooth over the rough places and, uh, and so forth. And even, you know, engage in a little myth-making. Um, but he says, you know, this isn't entirely a terrible thing. I mean, you need heroes. Um, and, um, and so, it, you know, it got me to thinking about the different ways it might be appropriate to approach the teaching of history based on the age of children, right? I mean, when they're little, they're too young to really understand complexity much. And so you tell the basic outlines of the story, but, and you have your heroes. And then when maybe they're a little older, you can start introducing the, the, the difficulties that, that, you know, people are flawed and nobody's perfect. And that, yep, our founders were slave owners and sometimes not so nice slave owners either. I mean, sometimes people want to, smooth that over too by saying, well, were they nice to their slaves? Well, you know, I mean, when you enslave someone, you're not being nice to them. Um, uh, anyway, so, so um, it's a very interesting piece, I think, um, with some really, really good observations. American Purpose, uh, 1619 versus 1776. So thank you, Will Salatin, for joining us. Uh, thank you, listeners. Please rate and review us and leave feedback. My, um, my email is available on the Bulwark website where you can find my writing as well and that of many others. And so we thank you all for listening, and we will be back next week as every week. Mm -hmm.